0: We would first like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to the Women in Wildlife podcast. You're joined by your co-hosts, Eliza and Maddie. So get ready to delve into all things women, wildlife and gender equality in STEM. Hey, Eliza, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Ready for the last episode of the year. so I know how exciting. Episode number four, here we are. Feels like we've been doing this for a while, but um, (laughs) we're actually still just learning a lot. So Yeah, um, I feel like
1: we've learned a lot and we're getting a lot better, but there's still so much to learn, but that's okay.
0: Each time a little bit less stress, which is probably... (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, how have you been since our last episode?
1: Yeah, good. I think in the last episode I was chatting about moving house and so we're fully moved in now which is exciting i um, still unpacking a million boxes as you do when you move house but yeah other than that really good I've almost finished up my secondment in my environmental um, planning role which has been really good I've learned a ton in that role so it's gonna be kind of sad to end it but I'm really grateful for all the experience in that so yeah just been really really busy and this time of the year is always crazy so how yeah.
0: about you yeah, it sounds like you've had a really great experience in your new role. So um, yeah, been very keen hearing about all of your updates. Seems like you've learned a lot, which is really cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I had. I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but I feel like probably since our last episode, I just submitted all of this stuff. Like I have submitted a couple of papers to journals. I submitted like a couple of ethics, and then I don't know. I, I just after I moved house too, and then I just sort of like was like, oh what do I do now? Like, I feel like it was all this kind of, like, rush to, get, to submit everything. And I'm like, oh, well, like, what does what do I do now? Um, so, Yeah, I feel like I've been a bit of a come down from all of that. But, yeah, getting back I into wish. Getting to- I wish. Into- I wish I could relate to that. That is so good. <laughs> I feel like it's, yeah, it was just, like, a bit of a weird feeling. Everything was kind of due at once. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. but ethics I, I have all been approved and yeah I've had a few um just minor changes for my papers which is exciting oh my gosh
1: that's amazing yeah, was, that, if honest, wait, what,
0: yeah, what was
1: it for your honest wait yeah that was
0: a couple of like years later <laughs> like i would to say you honours somewhere. Uh, yeah so trying to get them sort of which paper was this is your dingo one? Yeah, the jingo one's one of them. And then I had, which is so funny, because I actually just avoided doing chemistry in high school completely. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I failed year 11 chemistry. I didn't do year 12 chemistry. I hated chemistry, chemistry so much. The it's worst. I like... Did, i had to do this biochem subject as like a prerequisite when i was thinking about doing that and i hated chemistry so much that i actually um took biochem as like a external subject from rmit like a different university that didn't have any prerequisites for chem so just kind of painting a picture that i really hate chemistry <laughs> somehow i ended up doing this paper on like high level chemistry in honors on like protein binding of this drug called moxidectin in the serum of like marsupial species affected with psychoptic mange so yeah it was just a bit of a wild yeah. ride right? kind of like hilarious that this is like I'm going to be a published author in this area that like I'm terrible at, but um yeah. I did not even understand half of that time. <laughs> so that sounds very chemistry to me. I wrote this paper and I've got no idea what I wrote about. But so much advice that right. I'm listening. Oh,
1: can relate to the hate of chemistry. I got literally fifty percent on my first unit first year in chem, and then fifty nine. So I, I did approve So that's something. Organic <laughs> chem was much better, but oh. important.
0: Yeah, sort of the end of the year now. How have yeah, how have you found this year, Matt? And how are you looking forward to anything
1: next year? And oh wow, golly. Um yeah, this year has just been a lot. I feel like yeah. I'm not sure if anyone else can relate though. I feel like it just went so quickly, but mm. so slow at the same time. I've had so many changes. Well, I started a full-time job. I had two succumbents. so I've just got a hell of a lot of experience in, which has been great. Yeah, moved Moved houses like three times, so like out of um back to the parents' house, and then into my house now currently, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, just so busy, but so so good at the same time. And then next year, I'm so excited because I'm going to New Zealand, and we're doing like a two week trip in a little like van, which I'm so excited for. And then I'm going to Nepal and going to base camp and hiking up there for like three weeks. So really nervous about that I don't think I've really uh comprehended how much work that's gonna be but also really excited I feel like I'm channeling my you know, Eliza and just going as many trips as I can
0: just like yeah the chaos but I love it nah Nepal will be so <laughs> New Zealand and Nepal will be amazing I think base camp yeah be so incredible oh, I'm so excited came just spread. yeah
1: like it's gonna be such an insane like bucket list trip <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, if anyone else has been to base camp and give me some tips, please let me know because I don't really know what to expect. But that might be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> you smash it. Yeah. Be... <laughs> and you, what about you, Laz?
0: You're settling down with your PhD. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I feel like last year was. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you want to say. Look, I never know when people are like how your PhD is going. I'm like, I don't really know. Like, I yeah. it's <laughs> a bit different, but um, yeah. I feel like this year was again just kind of like yours. Just crazy. Like. So the job, like, yeah, I was working, yeah, at Australia Zoo, didn't really know what the year was going to look like at all, um, Mm -hmm. living in Queensland, yeah, doing, like, a lot of traveling, and then, yeah, sort of moved back to Victoria to my PhD, and, um, yeah, it's just been a bit of a whirlwind really. So lots of travel, lots of changes, bought my house, so lots of those kinds of things. Um, of course, but yeah, yeah, sort of I'm actually, which was so funny, which I did say to you before we started recording, but my sort of goal for next year is to travel less, which I know is <laughs> like very wild and like probably very privileged. But yeah, I feel like apart from those couple of years in COVID, all I've done sort of since I've been 18 is yeah, looking forward to the next trip and planning and saving and all those things. So Yeah, I've just sort of got a few big work goals that I really want to try and smash out, and try and not be distracted by planning my next holiday. But I'll see how I go because I don't really trust myself. Like, yeah, probably be too much. It still pops up. Like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Really want to go see the polar bears in Canada, but like, and I can't stop thinking about it. Like, you know, when you have a trip in your mind, you're like, this is actually overwhelming me. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. Oh well, count me in if you go. sounds good well yes we're we're lucky enough to sit down and have a chat with um dr prish for our, our final episode of the year um yeah amazing conversation we actually just had it so we've just recorded it now um yes, very insightful of um, all the different sort of conservation approaches from um, different countries around the world um, that she's been able to be involved in and, yeah, sort of how um, different countries tackle gender equality issues as well and sort of the intersect between um, conservation and, yeah, vet medicine, which is um, very, yeah, important conversation and very lucky to hear everything she had to say.
1: Yeah, such an insightful chat. I definitely learnt a lot i'm um, not super uh involved in the veterinary uh world so i always find these chats really insightful and i always yeah learn a ton because yeah eliza's more into that sort of stuff so i always enjoy these conversations but yeah i guess um we'll get into it and let you guys listen to the podcast so hope you guys enjoy it
0: yeah and everyone have a great christmas and we'll see you in the new year Welcome back to the Women in Wildlife podcast. We're lucky enough today to be joined by Dr. Prashani, who is a conservation vet at WWF International. So welcome, Prish. Welcome, Prish. Prish. (laughs) Thanks, guys. We're so So excited excited to have you today. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we've been speaking with you for a very long time through our platform. So we're really, really keen to have a chat to you today and find out a bit more about your role and um, yeah, your journey sort of getting there.
2: Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to take anybody who wants to on this journey with me. Um, I feel like the more people I connect with, the better it is for me as well. Um, I'm finding my way too.
0: Absolutely. collaboration is, um, yeah, finding out about other people's journeys. We've both learned a lot through, so definitely can can relate to that one.
1: Straight into it. So we just want to know what your current role is and what it entails and what – your kind of day in a life is um, with the current role you're doing and, yeah, how you got
2: to where you are now. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Well, I was with WWF Australia for two years and then I transitioned over to our international team. So we have different practices, um, so like a forest practice and oceans practice. And so I'm part of the core wildlife practice team that supports, you know, our global offices uh, and I'm their conservation veterinarian. I think there are no two days that are alike. Um, I've only been in this new role for about six months, but I have been working with the international team for the two years prior as well in a smaller capacity. Um, I think one of my main roles, parts of this role, is that I support and promote a One Health approach in all our global offices. And if you're unaware of what One Health is, um, it is the intersection of where human, animal and environmental health exists um, and one part of that job is to implement One Health projects, particularly in transboundary landscapes. So, something I'm working on at the moment is something in Africa, um, where there is a shared space between the community, the forest, and the wildlife that live there, and um, their agricultural sort of land as well. And as population grows, what's that impact, and how can we support wildlife? Uh, another part is that uh, I help to review. Uh, appropriate handling and translocations of endangered animals across the world. Um, and we also work closely with other organizations, most recently with WOA, which is quite exciting. Uh, WOA is the World Organization of Animal Health. It's kind of like our our leading body um, globally, and they've got such incredible people on staff. So it's been a real bl- blessing to work with them. And when I'm very very lucky then those kind of desk-based work transitions into field work and I can go out and train vets in the communities so that they're um, able to deliver care uh, you know to their wildlife and to their domestic animals it's about just creating a more holistic approach um, instill preventive medicine programs do some translocations um, and I guess those are like the main components of my role but like I said I'm still new in it finding our way forward um but it's it's exciting sounds
1: so cool I think everyone listening to this will be so jealous <laughs> of this. it sounds amazing whereas like you're like are you going anywhere soon for field work or have you had any field work trips yet or just um,
2: organizing stuff I mean I think initially a lot of it is talking and I don't know if other women are the same. Well, I mean, I suppose we're all we're all different, but I, I'm i not a person who likes to talk a lot. Um, I, I, a lot of people will laugh at that, but um, I like to be silent for the most part. But when you want to promote wildlife and, um, and One Health, you kind of have to get out there and share the message. So a lot of the initial trips are for conferences. Um, there might be uh I mean it's all dependent on funding right but um yeah, yeah. So we try to manage carbon emissions so yeah. live in Australia or well, I live in Australia um that it I, I don't want to overuse um the trouble that that I can so there's um like a tiger conference coming up in Cambodia there's um something about one health and epidemiology um in Kenya next year early next year but if I can if I'm, I've got it currently on the books, but I don't know 100%. It will happen, but there's a potential rhino translocation that we're looking at. Um, so cool. And so I might be able to join the Africa team for that one as well.
1: Sounds like you get so many incredible opportunities like
2: that. That's, that's insane. <laughs> I I think uh, yeah, it's it's a mix of being very lucky to deal with a lot of things, but sometimes it is um, very desk-based and so it's trying to marry that that difference Um, but when you are out in the field it is it's like a surreal feeling you know
1: yeah I guess it's good to highlight that sometimes these roles on the outside can seem very um field-based and or you know padding I don't know you know, padding lines or that random stuff like that. And people think that it's all field-based, but it's good to acknowledge that a lot of it is desktop-based and a lot of it is behind the scenes and only a small snippet snippet of it actually is field-based. So I feel like it's a good thing to highlight for people that are looking at getting into the role that, you know, have that expectation that you're not going to be on the field all the time. And if you are, then you're very, very lucky or that's you might have got a really cool role, but just yeah, something to highlight yeah
2: i think um being a wildlife vet or a a zoo vet is um is wonderful and you get a lot of hands-on work Mm -hmm. because you're in like a hospital setting more frequently um being a conservation vet you're out in the field and it's not always unless you're very lucky the case that you're out there all the time um and in order to do that work you need to generate funding as we all know um and so it requires a lot of um initial grafting before you mm. can do that incredible project yeah
0: yeah absolutely and i think that role just sounds so dynamic and diverse and i think really encapsulates sort of the whole um like basis of one health in that yeah so many different factors the you know, anthropogenic changes training like yeah as you say clinical vet work um yeah just so many different levels and sort of integrating the community obviously a wide range of areas that you're sort of attending to and I think when I first sort of saw when you started posting about this role as a conservation vet I was so intrigued I've never heard of anything like it before I yeah you kind of associate um clinical vets as yeah as being in clinic so I think it's really cool that this role is available and um that you're sort of promoting this through your social media too so we know that that is an option I think a lot of people think you have to choose one or the other um either be a clinical vet or you know a wildlife biologist so awesome that you can do both (laughs) um And how did you sort of find the transition um, go between treating wildlife and um, at the individual level and then sort of focusing on treatment at the population level and sort of going into that uh, conservation role and, um, yeah, sort of took us through how this different approach, um, yeah, transition was for you?
2: Yeah, look, like I said, it was really challenging. It's still challenging um, because my I had to realize that my joy comes from looking at an animal directly and feeling that I've done something because my history as a vet has been obviously you know you have to start with GP work and I did a lot of like internships or like externships sorry at, at different zoos Um, and then I moved into emergency medicine for like five years and I still sort of do a little bit um and you get immediate serotonin rush you know that you've done something you've saved a life um and it's the complete opposite with conservation you wait for years and um and hope that you've made a difference and when it does happen it's it's wonderful um but it is very challenging I've had to like create little ways for me to get that boost so I have like a little happy folder I keep on my computer or on my, um, you know, those subfolders on Outlook or whatever. Um, and it's just called happy. And anytime somebody says something or something that, you know, that I feel I've done a good job, I just whack it into that folder. Um, I also use my Instagram um, account as like a gratitude journal. So I can look at that. Um, I only post things that I feel grateful for. Um, because when, I mean, you know, Instagram, it's only one slice of somebody's life, but when I personally look at it, I want to, I want to feel joy um, as much as is possible. Um, and it's nice sometimes, you know, when like I recently went and presented in Bangkok about One Health um, and, you know, you're talking for days and and who knows if you're making a difference and you're, you're communicating the message to these sort of global directors. Um, and then I came back and a couple of weeks later, somebody sent me a little screenshot of a meeting that they were having. And somebody that I had spoken to was then sharing the message of One Health and talking about how important it is that we do it. And they said a little caption like, you did this. And I thought, you know, that's really nice. That's, um, that's something that I feel like uh, all the, the desk-based work kind of made, made a difference and it will trickle down into our field projects um and also i didn't want to lose um lose that uh, technical skill so i have um i still go occasionally into a local vet clinic just to do some gp work i try to keep my hand on the buzzer with emergency medicine because i think emergency and wildlife do often marry quite closely given the environmental extremes that we're having and the rising need for for vets to be able to respond Um, and I guess lastly is I also have a little uh, WWF isn't isn't my only job Um, it it could have been but I recognize that I do need to not be at a desk all the time so I also am a wildlife vet for a, a zoo that's so cool.
1: I think, um, yeah, you're talking about not being able to sit at a desk all the time relates to me so much because I'm exactly the same. Like I'd recently got a three-day desk job and the other two I'm in the field. And if I did not have those two days in the field, I would absolutely not be able to survive. So I can totally relate to that. I get way too antsy otherwise. Yeah,
2: that's incredible. I, I learned that with the Australian team, I think, uh, because technically my role should have been quite, you know, in the field more and I was in hospitals but not necessarily in the field um, and, yeah, I had a wonderful manager and I really and they helped me to to kind of balance my role a little bit by the end um, and then the times that you are out there doing translocations uh, of quals, uh, you know, it's it's pretty amazing.
0: No, absolutely. And do you think, like, had you always wanted to do um... – like be a wildlife vet or were you more interested in sort of the conservation stuff and didn't really know you could merge them both or
2: uh I grew up in a in a house where you know it was all about motivation and thinking positively and you know having vision boards. And so I think as a as a young kid I didn't really realize what I was doing that, that much. But I I stuck on there um a WWF picture, I stuck on their tigers, I stuck on there a vet and um I i wanted to be a vet since I was like four years old and um nobody's more surprised than me that it's all worked out
0: that's well, incredible like full well, on manifesting when you're younger and yeah
2: like,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, like the WIF logo that's that's a seriously intense manifesting so I'm very
2: yeah I was I was surprised too um and I definitely uh I'm sure like a lot of women wonder um how I got here and I know Dr. Keita Ashman will be really mad at me um, for saying it but um, you know you, you just work hard and I I worked as best as I could and I still look back and I, I like I look around and I think everybody else is smarter than I am or um, but it requires um, reflection and reminding myself that I have worked hard to get here and I have something to contribute.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so much hard work would have gone into getting to where you are today. And yeah, so we've spoken on the podcast before, but that imposter syndrome is often quite gendered. So I think it's yeah something we always have to catch ourselves. Um, yeah, feeling and yeah, it's obviously really important that we speak about it more as well and sort of know that we're not really alone in that too. So, thank you for sharing that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And how long um, did you study to get oh. to the I vet school. Uh, look
1: I
2: stopped counting um I did six years of vet school I oh, wow. left for a year to go to the states to do an internship at a hospital um and then uh and then oh I did I just finished my master's they um, literally just sent me my um my certificate notification saying that I've I've graduated. Uh, oh, congratulations! <laughs> so that was great. I mean, the masters it, sh- it probably should have happened a while ago. Um, but it's a one year degree, but I um I just took it in little bits because it's hard to you know do full time work and and also do that. Uh, but got there in the end, and I'm very happy. I had a great time doing it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Were you, so you were doing that um, as well as working at WWF um, in the role you're in at the moment or?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And what was the
0: actual master's called?
2: It's a master's of veterinary science in conservation medicine. Awesome. Very fitting. <laughs> Very fitting. And how did you, like, do you have any tips for anyone that is juggling
1: full-time work and study? Because I just feel like that is always a really hard task and I'm I'm considering going back to study as well soon and working full-time so any tips would
2: be great <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I I think you just have to be kind to yourself I it's a constant thing it's uh work to do it well if it was for me to remember to be kind to myself um and also to remember that I actually like studying like I'm <laughs> one of those people that um, if it's something that I'm interested in, I I enjoy it. Uh, and so I used to be like, oh, I've got this assignment due and I've got this due and, you know, you have to do, what is it, 10 hours per unit of study or something like that per week, additional study. Um, and I used to, in some moments, let it get me down. And then I'm as I'm studying, I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. I like reading this. And um, I had to just remind myself that it wasn't just a task to be finished, it was something Mm -hmm. I deeply enjoyed. Um, And it was also reflective in my grades because I I wasn't the best student at at uni for my bachelor's. Um, But I think once I started to learn how to study better and also um, do something that I deeply enjoyed like conservation medicine, I I just did really well at it and it, it came quite naturally to me and have a good support system as well don't forget that your family or your friends are there um and be kind to them too because I <laughs> sometimes would get stressed and then yell at my sister and um <laughs> uh and that's not the right way to go because they're just trying to tell you to eat your food so that yeah. you can study at the same time um so yeah it's just uh be kind to others be kind to yourself and um and find the joy in what you're doing
0: yeah awesome no, that's great advice <laughs> definitely I think we can all um relate Wear some of that down yeah sort of lashing out on everyone's around us when we're really stressed <laughs> the ones
1: we love the most exactly of the most,
0: right? <laughs> Awesome. Well, sort of, yeah, winding back a little bit to sort of that um, intersect between conservation or ecology and um, wildlife medicine. Do you feel that the veterinary world and the conservation world collaborate um, and work sort of successfully together um, to deliver like the best disease ecology outcomes? Or do you think there sort of is a little bit of divide? Like I know, yeah, I'm sort of doing my PhD in um, vet science and disease. And I do feel like ecologists and vets don't necessarily always work um, fantastically as they could. So yeah, obviously you're right in the crux of <laughs> um, that intersect. So very keen to um, hear your
2: opinion on that. I think it's getting better. Um, we're moving in the right direction. And overall, I would say that we can't deliver a One Health approach with siloed responses. Um, understanding the overlap between public health and wildlife health, environmental health requires that multi sectoral, transdisciplinary collaboration. Um, There's always going to be a little bit of pressure, I think, in terms of funding. And so that I do understand that veterinarians, at least in this country, feel the pressure of treating wildlife um, when they don't, they aren't supported well to do that job. Um, And of course, the rehabilitators are in the same boat. Um, When it comes to conservation and veterinary work, Yes, we could definitely be doing better um, by sharing monitoring tools, knowledge, resources, um, even finding a little bit of balance between public health, like human health, um, and the systems that are in place. And I feel like when we implement a conservation program, there is definitely and there's probably always going to be a focus on human health, you know, we have to have to take care of bats because they could inflict disease on us. It's never just because we care about, about bat health. Um, But that is the way of the world. And I think perhaps currently, and I think perhaps that COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 um, has taught us that it is important to prevent pandemics at the source. And so um, there is definitely a movement now uh with the united nations uh going through for ppats and that is we're working hard it's one of my my jobs as well to include um, one health in that discussion um and try to include veterinarians in the language as we talk about it um so it's not just so you know it is of course ecologists and um and monitoring in the field but also um start to get that language included of the importance of, of veterinary health as well as public health.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, yeah, as you're so right. Like a, the whole concept of One Health is there so much human health within that as well. So, um, yeah, engaging the public health sector is so important. And, yeah, no, you've really um,
2: articulated that amazingly. So thank you. <laughs> I think that there is um, everybody in their own discipline has so much to give. And there is definitely a a feel, um, and it, it certainly was when I started um, in this job, uh, well, not this international job, but, you know, in this conservation world, that some people don't fully understand what vets are capable of. Um, veterinarians are... You know, they have so much knowledge on epidemiology and public health and um, sustainable agriculture and uh, diseases and, you know, so many things. And so when we talk about conservation veterinarians, you're not just thinking about that, that vet in that wildlife hospital that's treating that possum. It is perhaps that vet who is considering the health of sea lions and why their population is diminishing. Um, Do they have hookworm or do they have toxoplasmosis? These are animals that live in a coastal world very close to humans. What is the runoff? What is the connection there? And how best can we improve their health and also improve improve human health at the same time? Um, So it's really a a much more broader look at things.
0: No, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, obviously COVID devastating from so many factors, but I think, I don't know if you would agree with this, but there is a lot more funding potentially being pushed at one health, um, projects and things because of it. And I think it's a little bit more recognized, um, like the effects and I guess obviously anthropogenic changes, it is going to get a lot worse. So I think, yeah, there's one good thing to come out of COVID that was definitely potentially better
2: awareness uh, within the one health space. I mean, there's the pandemic fund, which was, uh, it's a billion dollars, I believe, and 300 million is coming out this December, um, which is round two. So, I mean, that is definitely a good thing. Uh, And it's important because studies have shown that uh, preventing pandemics before they happen are um, much more cost effective than having to deal with it afterwards. Mm. Definitely preventative measures are best.
0: And are there similar roles, like I've owned, as I said, I was, yeah, when you sort of started posting about your current role, um, I hadn't really heard of a conservation vet before. Are there other roles um, like yours apart from being at WWF or is it pretty exclusive um, to the organization?
2: Uh, I'm sure that there are other jobs. I think some other vets, you know, if they're wildlife vets, they call themselves just a veterinarian or a wildlife vet. But the job they're actually doing is is a conservation veterinarian. It's just the term that we have started to, to use a bit more. Um, and I mean, I particularly use the term because I find it good to start these kind of discussions um, and improve an understanding of what a wildlife vet actually does. But I don't doubt that those vets who are out there in, in the field in, in Africa or in Asia, working with rhinos and elephants and tigers and all these other incredible animals um, are also considering the health of, um, of that population um, disease ecology in that community as well.
0: Yeah, no, totally, and I think yeah, I don't. I'm sure a lot of people listening probably do follow um, Chloe Buting, but just sort of following her work and you know the whole uh, dehorning um, the rhinos and everything like that, those sort of conservation extreme measures, I suppose that we are having to go to. That is obviously like a very conservation based. So no, you are right. It doesn't necessarily need to be labelled, but a lot of people are doing incredible work in the space.
2: Yeah, I found Chloe through um through you know your. Your platform as well, um, and we started having a, a little discussion. I hope good things are going to happen soon. I don't want to say anything yet, but
1: <laughs> <Ooh>.
2: <laughs> we might hopefully meet up and and talk about some working together. That would be lovely.
1: Love that. Oh, great. Great. So good. <laughs> <Your mom left. laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Video. Um, and just quickly touching on how you're currently working at an international company. How have you found? I guess the transition from, yeah, into an international company and how they approach conservation issues and gender equality issues in the workplace? Like, have you found any discrepancies or differences
0: or challenges? Yeah, sort of between like countries, I guess. Um, mm. Different countries sort of deal with these issues.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, As an organisation, we have our own standards um, across the network that we have to follow. But country-wise, it is... Um, sorry. Sorry country-wise it is uh it can be challenging because we have several offices in developing countries um and they face severe challenges when dealing with biological diversity as many people listening to this will know um and it's very difficult for them to focus on long-term conservation needs when they are trying to put food on the table and keep warm um and earn money to buy essential products um in the face of you know uh, a difficult economy so it can be challenging and also that's why I think One Health is such a great um concept because when you go into areas um, you have to really consider, we have to consider that where if we ask them to stop, you know, maybe killing this wildlife so they can eat or use it for the wildlife trade, how else are they going to feed themselves or get money? Um, so it requires a longer discussion. Um, and we have in our organization, um, tools and, and teams that help us to engage in those discussions. Um, but certainly it's something we have to take into account um, at in developing countries. And in, you know, in in other countries which are already developed, um, I think there is a there's a responsibility that we have that I don't think uh, has been fully uh, embraced yet. Um, one sort of topic i always like to, to talk about and it, it's old now it's it's called a teab. so um it's that is considering the economic invisibility of biodiversity so for example if um if you're going to have an agricultural um, growth or crops um, and you're next to the Amazon rainforest, uh, how much of that is because, how much success are you going to have from your crops because of the rainfall that you know you get because you you live next to a forest that is basically the lungs of the earth. Um, and so when you start to, to break it down and there are tools through um, TEB um, that will help you to understand Um, What is that economic invisibility? How can you crunch the numbers to know this forest is actually allowing me to produce this many dollars of this much crops? Um, And I think that that is something that if developed world can take on board in these big companies, then you don't just feel like it's a good thing to help the environment. It's a necessary part of your livelihood. Um so that's I guess one aspect of it. Um and I think also looking at the differences in each country, um, like for gender, is uh is something we have to consider as well. Women of all ages pay play a, a role in in managing our natural resources in most parts of the world. Um and yet they tend not to be included um, from participating in community decisions and policy making. Um, and so that is something that we can start to address. Um, and when I know when I look at a proposal I looked at one recently um, for uh, for transboundary landscape and um, the report came back to me. I definitely paid attention to how many men versus how many women were on that report, and then sent it back to us for um, a, a wider uh, consultation with women. Um, so that's something that I do in my work. Um, and I think uh, I think it's getting better as we recognize it. But it can be tricky in um in some communities where women don't feel, ready or um or that it is in their um their ability to be safe and to come out and speak Mm. as well so if there are definitely behavioral change guidelines um that have been shared through many conservation organizations on how to manage those discussions
0: yeah, wow. Yes. Yeah, a lot of new things to me there. I hadn't heard about um, economic invisibility. So that was really interesting. Yeah. yeah that's really
1: great. And, um, I know you touched on TEBs. Is that correct? TEEBs? Yeah. I haven't heard of that before. Can you just quick, give a quick summary? <laughs> because I have no clue on what that is.
2: So TEEB um, stands for the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity. Okay. It was started by a um, an economist uh, who is Pavan Sukhdev, who was um, a- at one time, I think, uh, the president of WWF, and he decided, or he had this idea, um, to create a global initiative on making nature's values visible. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a very interesting concept it's been around for quite some time, and a lot of big companies have taken it on board, um, but we could definitely utilize it uh, far more to make that understanding and awareness more mainstream um, and build it into the decision making of these organizations.
0: Yeah, no, that's incredible. I haven't heard of that resource at all. So I think hopefully our listeners can definitely have a little look at that as well. Um, But yeah, the whole sort of concept is... Yeah, so relevant. And I do remember when I was like 19 or 20 and I went to Borneo for the first time. And sort of in my head I had no idea of the um sort of levels of complexity within conservation. I just sort of thought, you know, deforestation is bad and obviously it is really bad for biodiversity. But um just speaking to the locals and sort of being in the community for a number of weeks, I yeah, was so shocked to sort of hear that they were very much pro deforestation because obviously it provides jobs for them. And um, yeah, they saw sort of really opened my eyes to the different perspectives of the local communities and I I think especially in Australia, whereas we may not have these um, sort of issues where we need these jobs as much, I guess, obviously in different levels like mining and things. But, yeah, definitely was a huge shock for me being quite young. And then going to Africa, I yeah, sort of obviously similar issues. I was working in this um, lion food sort of rescue them from um, pretty much farmers about to shoot them. And I just remember being quite Mm -hmm. confronted But the whole, you know, being – able to empathize with um people this is their livelihoods and if this lion's going to eat how many of their cattle then that's a huge huge economic loss for them so yeah so much more to consider and you would definitely get a huge perspective um in the role you're in and sort of the different yeah issues that each country faces um yeah
2: we have to build an understanding of um or a feeling of stewardship um, that this is their land, and I think the Indigenous people almost do it very well. Um, and so we we have a lot to learn from the Indigenous people of, of these lands, um, and, and then to build programs that include that knowledge. Um, I completely understand when I was in Borneo as well, it's... Um, the, the people who are working in these small conservation teams in the jungle, um, in the forest are the minority. Um, you know, most of the, the population think that those people who are trying to preserve the forest are crazy. Um, and so it, it was definitely a challenge for me, um, very difficult situation, um, but when you start to work with them slowly and the thing is it takes time right it takes so many months um to build trust and then to start to slowly implement change um when i was there also when i was in vietnam the same situation um or very similar happened where you definitely can't go in and just tell people what to do um you have to work with them um, and I remember, and I tell the story so many times, but I never get tired of it because um, the thing that that started me on on conservation was at Bristol Zoo when I heard this um, this person talk about uh, creating green corridors for the crown sifaka in Madagascar, and somebody, and you know, it's so sad when you hear the story, they're killing them, you know, the people are, are eating them for the bush trade and, 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 um, and they're cutting down forests for, for fire. Um, and it sounds very sad because we all care about, about those things. Um, and somebody in the audience said, uh, how do you fight them? And she looked at them with this um, perplexity. And then she said, you don't fight them. She's like, you You work with them um, and you bring them on that journey. And so what she did and what her team did was um, they went into the forest, did absolutely nothing, made no changes for, I think it was over a month. Um, it could have been longer. I can't remember now. It's a long time. But um, And they just listened and learned why they did the things that they did and then went back home Thought about ways deeply how to make change, and then came back and taught them how to grow fast-growing trees so they could have, um, you know, shelter and and coal, and then also taught them about living more harmoniously with animals and creating um, forest rangers and stewards to protect the forest. Um, and you know, many other small different things that were required that would not have. The program would not have been as successful as it was if they did not take that time to listen deeply to begin with
0: yeah wow well, that's an amazing model that we should yeah definitely all consider mm-hmm. in these conservation projects and i think in australia yeah i think we sort of do lack empathy for other cultures and yeah just i guess obviously being quite isolated on an island i think yeah can kind of go in a bit headstrong and this is the way we're going to fix it so i think yeah really considering the culture and the implications for the community is incredibly important so thank you for sharing that and highlighting there's like so much cultural complexities that are involved in these decisions and you can't just
1: you know it's not just one-stop shop decision there's so much that needs to be involved in understanding so yeah it just shows how yeah difficult that those decisions can be and we can't just go in and demand all these changes yeah that having understanding is so important
2: yeah and I think um especially women in wildlife uh we tend to have a uh I want to say a softer approach it's not always the case but we're more we're more used to listening and taking time because we've had to do it for so long um and I think it we have unique skills that um that we can use and we can bring um in the roles that we have and so sometimes I I say this because sometimes I have been in meetings with, Multiple men, and I'm, you know, they're all very experienced. And I kind of feel, what am I doing here? How can I speak out? Like, um, how best do I engage Um, when they're very strong voices in the room? Um, And I feel like two things about that. One is that I've had incredible male colleagues who um, will always to me and look and, and ask what my opinions are um, and support me um, which is incredibly invaluable um and the second thing is that um women standing up for other women so I I pay particular attention when um when a soft-spoken woman has has chosen to speak or tried to speak and I really support them um as well I like I said I don't like talking but um I have certain skills in communicating. And so I really try to use them as best as possible to promote my message and to the message of um, of other women in the room, um, because it can be quite quite tricky, um, but also so valuable in a community setting when I see sometimes in these developing countries that a softer approach or a a more considered approach um, is, is what they need and it takes that person who is um a bit more cognizant of of hanging back and waiting and letting it play out um and then engaging
0: yeah no that makes complete sense and I think it sort of goes back to the whole like we need diversity and conservation and I think having yeah people who are quieter and yeah generally sit back and think about things a bit more are so invaluable in a team so yeah that's great that you can really like amplify their voices when they do speak up. (laughs)
2: Although nobody in my uh, WWF team would say that I'm quiet. Um, Every time I tell them, I'm like, I'm really quiet. They're like, no, you're not. Don't believe (laughs) me. That's awesome.
0: And the behavior guidelines that you were speaking of too there. Yeah, that's awesome that WWF has that in place, especially you can just refer to that if you are in different countries um, and something to keep coming back to. So that is really interesting and something that yeah, many organizations would consider if they don't have already
2: yeah we have internal guidelines um across all of our offices um i hope that we'll be able to share them in the longer term um but they're sourced from not just our work but from the work that's been done from incredible people um across the globe and so there are definitely resources out there that you can tap into because sometimes um when even when i look at a a project and i say okay i want to go do this incredible thing for wildlife um but there's a a strange or a divide between women and men that I don't know how to deal with um it's it's useful to have something that goes okay step one do this um rather than undated. yeah that's so good I feel like
1: yeah such a good benchmark for any other organization that's looking at implementing something similar that's something that they could totally um yeah go off if they don't have anything similar for sure but yeah, thank you so much for someone that doesn't like talking. You've um, had such a valuable conversation today, and I think me and Eliza have learned so much from this. So we're both very, very grateful for you coming on today.
2: Oh no problem. You guys have made it um, very chilled, which was oh great. good. And we appreciate it because um, I'm going into three more hours of meetings after this. Um, and more talking. <laughs> yes, more talking. But my next one is pretty good. It's um on uh protecting wildlife in bushfires um, So we're getting, Very
1: relevant of, at this time. getting
2: <laughs> all these different offices and you know the fires have affected like Greece and Turkey and so crazy mm-hmm. that you know the UK had fires there when I was there last year um, so it's something that is an important message so happy to talk about it
0: Oh gosh, no, that's really relevant. I think, yeah, sort of the post-2021 fires or whatever we had in Australia. Um, yeah, the emergency response and sort of um deducing and dissecting, I guess, what how we responded and how we can do better. It'd be so interesting comparing that to different countries and um, yeah, obviously different landscapes with fire. So no, gosh, I'd love to hear a little bit, <laughs> a
2: little bit we more. You gotta protect those wombats, right, Eliza?
0: Exactly. Always <laughs> <laughs> can you
2: see in my background? The-
0: oh, so cute. In my office. <laughs> Nice. No, awesome. Thank you so much, Prash.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate your expertise and very keen to
0: keep following your journey and all the amazing work that you're doing.
2: Thanks so much. And thanks for everything that you guys do. I love um, looking at your posts and listening to your podcast. Um, and I can't wait to hear your podcast and find out more about you too. <laughs> Down the track. Yeah. <laughs> <It sounds like laughs>
0: okay. <bit> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Prash. Thank you.
1: thanks so much for listening to the women in wildlife podcast if you liked what you heard today give us a follow on our instagram or facebook to keep up to date with our latest interviews news and when our next episode is coming out bye for now